I have, I have no expertise in that area, but I, I'm just looking at the situation, and I just believe that uh, this is going to be a bigger problem than people thought, for sure. This is Jeffrey Gunlock voicing his opinion of how he thinks the current environment, with the virus spreading, with the interest rates being lowered, and the stock market volatility, he thinks that this is a bigger deal than what other people are making it out to be. Now, this is a time when everybody's voicing their opinion about what they think of the current situation. I thought it would be interesting to take a look at a few notable people. We're going to be looking at this long-form interview with Jeffrey Gunlock and a few of the points that he brings up, as well as Howard Marks, the billionaire manager of Oak Tree Capital, has gone into detail on a memo about the valuation of the S&P 500, whether or not it's a good time to buy right now or whether we should wait. And then we have my strategy. Everything that I've been doing over the past couple of weeks and what I plan on doing in the future, given the circumstances. So let's jump right into this first with Jeffrey Gunlock. He's the one that's termed the bond king. He runs a, a really big bond fund where he gives a lot of forecasts. He looks into the future. He takes into account the interest rates, the current environment and sentiment, and he gives analysis based off of that. I think it's interesting to look at some of his comments here. The first thing he's asked about is whether he thinks it's a good thing to panic or not, which is an interesting question. Yeah, well, I, I don't disagree with that. I, when I say panic, it doesn't mean it's not justified. I mean, sometimes panic is justified. If someone's breaking in your house through the window, I think you're supposed to panic. Uh, and business activity is pretty likely to contract. And obviously, the airlines are in free fall for good reason. Mm -hmm. And small business activity is going, to, is going to contract. I think it's foolhardy to think anything other than this is going to take a major hit to short-term economic growth. So he takes the opposite approach here and says, yes, there are times to panic. If somebody's breaking into your house, that's a time to panic, right? There, there are times in the market where there's a lot of, of factors going on. And he highlights that this thing could cause economic slowing with large and small businesses because people are traveling less. They're going out and spending less money. And that can affect the short-term earnings of businesses. I think, though, the key phrase that I look at with what he explained there with the biggest risks is the phrase short-term. He's saying that businesses might be affected in the short term. Now, I think that everything he's outlined here is serious, that people could stay home, that they could travel less, and it could affect things in the short term. But I do think that this is going to be a temporary thing. If you're an investor that's not restricted by day-to-day -day investments, if your horizon is five years in the future and 10 years in the future, I don't really think you need to panic in this situation. Now, he goes on to specify what he thinks are the worst markets to be in right now, the ones that are in most danger of the current circumstances, the current threats. I mean, I just think that the, the two sectors that are just falling knives are financials and transports. And I don't see anything that's going to reverse that until we get through the other side of this valley of this, uh, this sort of travel shutdown. And financials, of course, are getting trashed thanks to the uh, low interest rates. So he says financials and travel are falling knives. I would have to agree with him on that. I don't have a lot of travel, but I do have finance and it's pretty bad over the past month. I've lost nearly 20% in value, $2,125 just over the past month with just this sector. So this isn't my overall portfolio, but just based on my financial companies, they've all gone down in value pretty substantially over the past weeks. Now, the next thing that he's asked is about how politics plays into this. He notes that after Joe Biden won Super Tuesday, that markets rallied based off of that. And he talks a little bit about how the Democrats are ending up with Joe Biden being in the lead here. And it's pretty remarkable how well the Democratic establishment engineered Super Tuesday. Bernie Sanders was looking pretty good 
uh, and uh, they really changed things by encouraging Buttigieg and uh, Klobuchar to drop out and throw their support behind Biden. And they even trotted out Beto O'Rourke to do it. And it was pretty darn effective. So it looks like they've engineered a Joe Biden uh, candidacy. So he notes as a big reason why he thinks that, that Senator Sanders didn't do well on Super Tuesday was because the DNC coalesced around Biden. They implemented a lot of things to help support Biden through Super Tuesday, and they kind of went against Bernie Sanders there. Now, this is interesting because he also lists off another reason why he doesn't think that Bernie Sanders did well on Super Tuesday, and he thinks that it's going to actually affect the general elections as well. Bernie Sanders uh, didn't do well on Super Tuesday was that he unfortunately appeals to voters that don't vote. He appeals to low turnout segment of the population, the young people, and the, the, the younger people just didn't show up on Super Tuesday. I've got a feeling that if the younger people that support Bernie Sanders didn't show up for Bernie Sanders, that they're extremely unlikely to show up for Joe Biden. So I actually agree with him here. I think this was part of the issue in the previous election with Hillary Clinton taking the nomination, a lot of people felt that Bernie Sanders had it kind of robbed from him. And you could see the DNC implementing the same strategies on Super Tuesday. All the reasons that he outlined, they're coalescing around Joe Biden. They want him to be the nominee. They're somewhat pushing Bernie Sanders out. So the supporters of Bernie Sanders are going to have a harder time voting for Joe Biden if they feel like their candidate was robbed. Now, we know from the past week that the markets were positive after Joe Biden won Super Tuesday. That was something that the markets reacted that way because investors look at Joe Biden as a less extreme version of what Bernie Sanders was saying. He's not wanting to do as many changes to companies and the way that the capital system works that Senator Sanders was wanting to do. Now, Jeffrey Gunlock outlines what he thinks will be a continued risk going on with the elections as Joe Biden moves into the generals. But I think one thing that's going to happen, it's not going to be so much that the market is scared of Bernie Sanders, because it looks to me like he's pretty much done. But I think the market's going to have to be scared of Joe Biden starting to move to the left, because he needs to consolidate support as he can to try to woo back or woo in the Bernie supporters, well, you, uh, who probably are pretty upset by the move by the, the DNC you're gonna to get. basically once again take it away from Bernie. So Jeffrey's prediction is that as Joe Biden moves into the generals, he'll want to consolidate support from Bernie Sanders voters. And to do that, he's going to try to implement some of the same policies that Bernie Sanders held, which would put downward pressure on the stock market. Now, I don't really agree with this assessment. I think that when you move into the generals, a lot of times the policies become less extreme. They become a little bit more bland because you're trying to get a, a much wider audience there, not just appealing directly to your base. So I don't know if that's going to be the case, where Joe Biden is going to come out with a lot of policies that look very similar to Bernie Sanders. Now, historically speaking, general elections have been a pretty good time to invest your money into the stock market because it's unpredictable. We don't know who's going to become president. And anytime there's things that are unpredictable or uncertain, investors don't like that. So they pull their money out of the market. They don't like different candidates that are running or their different policies. They don't like if they would become the president, what direction they would take it. And so they take their money out of the U.S. economy. Now, so far, whoever's won presidency, it typically hasn't been as bad as people imagined it to be. And the stock market and the economy has continued to go upwards despite who becomes president. So if you're not too concerned about the political landscape, you might be able to take advantage of all this uncertainty. Now, the last thing that I'll highlight from this is his opinion on the rate cuts. He thought that those were justified, and he's asked if he thinks that the Fed is going to cut interest rates again. I think they cut 50 at the next meeting uh, and in just two weeks. I think, I think that's going to happen. 
So he thinks that the Fed's going to cut rates again in just two weeks. And he's asked about negative interest rates, if we're going to follow what Europe has done. No, I don't think we go to negative rates. I think Jay Powell understands that negative rates are fatal to the global financial system. If we go to negative rates, there will be capital destruction en masse. We can withstand negative rates in Japan. We can withstand negative rates in Europe because we've got the United States where you don't have negative rates. We talked about earlier how the banking system in Japan has been decimated since 1995 with zero interest rates. We've seen how the banking system in Europe has been decimated in the aftermath of the global financial crisis thanks to negative interest rates. Jay Powell, I applaud him loudly, seems to understand that negative interest rates in the United States would be a complete disaster for the financial system. Hopefully this is the case. I don't think it would be good for us to go to negative interest rates. You can look at any other place like the ones that he's outlined, and it hasn't really worked out all that well. So I think there's a chance that we could go down next to zero interest rates again, like we were previously for years. But Jay Powell so far has said he doesn't want to go to negative interest rates. So I think overall, Jeffrey Gunlock has a pretty bearish view on the economy right now, on the market. He thinks that there's a lot of issues coming forward. He sees the low interest rates as problematic for certain industries. He sees the political environment as something that could put downward pressure on the market. And of course, the virus spreading could hurt businesses as well. So he's outlining all of these things. And what I want to do is see what he says and every argument that he's giving for the economy going forward and how that factors into this, how this factors into my investment philosophy and the direction that I'm going. And the first thing that I'll mention is the word temporary. Jeffrey Gunlock mentioned the word temporary multiple times in that interview. He says that a lot of the threats in the market are temporary threats. So if you're a long-term investor, if you're focused on generating a stream of passive income, if you're focused on growing the amount of earned dividends, the amount of cash flow that your companies can pay you, then the short-term temporary threats to the marketplace shouldn't really be a big concern. I look at this graph and it's the month over month amount of dividends I'm earning. And I can look at this all the way back in 2018 where I didn't earn any dividends. And then you can see in the last couple of months, I've been bouncing from $350 to $160 to $192. Every single month, I add up how much money my companies have paid me in dividends and I plot them out on this chart. And so it gives me an idea of the amount of passive income I'm growing over time. Just in the past business day, I earned $98.73 in dividends. If I go into my activity feed here, I filter by dividends. I can take a look at how this played out. March 6, Amgen paid $8.50. Boeing paid $3.73. Then I had a bunch of bonds that paid $16.38, buck 90. $2.20, another $2. Then Pfizer paid $15.14 and Southern Company paid $21.51. All those numbers, they're not huge numbers, right? We have $16, $15, You might say, well, your portfolio is $70,000. That doesn't really make a difference, but that's one day. That is March 6. All these payments were one single day. Gets added to my cash balance and then that $98 is going to be reinvested and purchase more of the companies that I want to own. So, it does make a difference, a pretty significant difference over a long period of time. In fact, if I break down my performance here, the earned dividends makes up almost half my gains right now because the capital gains have been so volatile, bouncing back and forth, that the earned dividends are now really what's pushing my portfolio forward. So it does make a huge difference. I can look at the past month here, and my portfolio is down 6.63%. That's $5,193. The S&P 500, for reference, is down about 11.5% during that same time period. But if I go and break this down even further, the market gains went down a lot, but my earned dividends, I earned $281 in dividends. All my companies that normally paid out, they paid me a lot in dividends. 
$281 is a lot of money to earn in passive income in one month. Now, I've said this before. I focus more on the earned dividends than I do the market gains. And I've said that even when in the past 30 days, the market gains have been in the green. So it's not something I say just out of convenience because the market gains are in the red. If you watch previous videos, I've said multiple times that I focus on the earned dividends more than the market gains. There's two basic reasons why. The first one is that the market gains does not tell you that much information. It really doesn't. The only thing that this tells you is that other people have sold out of your companies, that this negative $5,474 over the past 30 days, all that means is that some people have logged into their brokerage and they've hit the sell button. That's the only bit of information that hedge funds and other investors have sold out of these companies. It does not tell you anything about the company's performance, anything about their balance sheet, anything about their future growth prospects, anything about the company whatsoever. All these companies that they're selling out of could be in fantastic position. So we don't really gain any information from looking at the market gains. On the contrary, dividends tell you a lot. They're decided internally by the company. So if a company doesn't have the net cash flow or the balance sheet to be able to continually pay dividends, they will cut or slash their dividend. So all this money that I'm earning from the dividends, from the passive income month over month, that is actually decided internally by the company themselves. That's decided by their cash flow, their net income. The executives at the company and the CEO will decide how much money they can disperse in dividends. If they were actually having significant trouble running their business, then they would cut or slash their dividend. So that's the first thing, is I think that dividends actually tell you something about the company. The market gains, which are based solely off of whether investors sell or buy the company, doesn't tell you a whole lot in and of itself. The second reason why I focus on the dividends, I focus on the passive income over the short-term capital gains is because I think it's all about perspective. We're investors here. Everybody's human. And looking at these red numbers is not something fun to look at. It can cause people to be very nervous. It can cause you to make poor financial decisions where you sell out of your portfolio or you sell out of good businesses because you're seeing red numbers and red numbers are scary. I think having a long-term perspective where you're focused on the actual passive income that you're generating over long periods of time will give you a better chance of staying invested despite different market conditions. If you focus on the short-term capital gains, sometimes it's in the green. Here we are up $1,600 in the past five days, but then in the past month, we're down $5,100. That is an absolute roller coaster ride. If you're looking at that all the time, you're going to drive yourself nuts. I look at these graphs on my spreadsheet I made, and it gives you a much broader picture. Tracking your monthly income month over month and seeing this grow over time keeps me on track with my long-term view of having a portfolio that gives me financial freedom, that when these numbers get high enough, or instead of this being $353, it's $3,500, that's where I have financial independence. And you can get to that point. You can get to the point where you're earning thousands of dollars a month in dividends every single month, living financially independent because of your dividend income. That's something that I get questions about it semi-regularly. There will be people that will email in or question me saying, is this realistic? Is this something that people actually do? Does anybody actually live off of dividend income? The answer is yes. People live off of dividend income. People live financially independent lives because they've built up a passive stream of income. I talk pretty frequently to one of those people that are living off of dividends, that are financially independent. On the Discord for the channel here, we have a saved message of one of the members where his estimated income is $53,134. That's all dividends. He doesn't even hold bonds in his portfolio. So that's 100% dividends, $53,134 in one year. And 
This is something that's pretty amazing to see for people that haven't seen any type of portfolios like this, anybody that's realized the goal of financial independence. But when you meet somebody and talk to somebody that's already at that point, they'll say, yeah, you just got to be smart and invest for a long period of time and, you know, stick with it. That's pretty much what they say. He has posted screenshots of him earning like a couple thousand dollars in one day in dividends. So it's pretty amazing to see this, but it's something that I think that we can all accomplish. Now, I will say, if you want to join the Discord, there's a link in the description. I appreciate everybody that does. It helps support the channel. So it's been a lot of fun to see a lot of different investors from completely new to very experienced join and discuss different things. Now, moving on, I want to talk about valuation and specifically the overall value of the stock market right now. So the S&P 500 has fell a lot from its highs and a lot of investors are saying is now a good time to buy. Does this mean that things are undervalued right now? Well, there's a memo from Howard Marks. He's the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital. He's a billionaire and he has some thoughts on whether the stock market is undervalued right now. I'll highlight just a couple parts of this memo. The first part, he says, these days people have been asking me whether this is the time to buy. My answer is more nuanced. It's probably a time to buy. There can be no unique time to buy that we can identify. The only thing that we can be sure of today is that stock prices, for example, are a lot lower in the absolute than they were two weeks ago. So saying it might be a time to buy, we don't know if this is the time to buy. He goes on to say that the U.S. stock market's down about 13% from the top. That's a big decline. It would be a lot to accept that the U.S. business world and the cash flows it will produce in the future are worth 13% less today than they were February 19th. That's a, a statement that I agree with. There's something wrong with that. When the U.S. stock market falls 13% in two weeks, that really makes you question, is all future business activity from the United States worth 13% less than it was a couple weeks ago? I have a hard time believing that, but he goes on to explain why this doesn't necessarily mean that things are undervalued right now. He says this sentence may make it sound like I think the markets are undervalued, but that's not the proper interpretation. If it were overvalued on the 19th, rather than being undervalued today, after the decline, it could just be less overvalued. So he's saying on the 19th, before the stock market dropped, it could have been very overvalued. And right now it's just closer to fairly valued. He goes on to even clarify this saying, I think the stock market was overvalued two weeks ago, somewhat. That means I think that today, even with the short-term prospects of the business somewhat diminish, it's closer to fairly valued, but not necessarily a giveaway. And then under the question, buy, sell, or hold, he says, what I would do is figure out how much money you'll want to have invested by the time the bottom is reached, whatever that is, and spend part of it today. Stocks may turn around and head north, and you'll be glad that you bought some, or they may continue to go down, in which case you'll have money left and hopefully the nerve to buy more. That's life for most people who can accept that they don't know what the future holds. The strategy that Howard Marks has outlined here is exactly the strategy that I'm following, where I don't know what direction the market's going to go tomorrow. It could either open in a positive by a thousand points or in the negative. Nobody can predict that accurately. We know that what Jeffrey Gunlock pointed out earlier is that the market is facing a lot of challenges this year, so it might fall further in the future. So what Howard Marks is saying here is to not spend all of your money at once in the market. He's saying to spend some of your money today and then wait. You'll be glad if it went up in price because then you spent some of your money and that went up in value. And if it continues to fall, you'll be glad you waited so you can invest more. That's the strategy that I'm doing. I'm only buying and I'm buying a little bit more aggressively if the stock market is falling more aggressively. So 
as we see these big red days over and over again and these big declines, that's going to be times where I accelerate my deposit schedule a little bit to put more money into the market. If it returns to normal and it goes back to the green, I'll continue doing my normal dollar cost averaging strategy. Now, one last piece of news that I want to mention before jumping into the questions is they have these interviews of different political figures that come on, like Larry Kudlow that talks about the coronavirus and about the economy. I want to play just a couple different clips of this and explain why what he's saying is not that valuable. It's not something that you should really be gauging much information off of. So here's a couple different things that he says. I've argued and I will continue to argue economic problems are going to be temporary and short-lived. The virus is not going to last forever. Human side, a lot of difficulties there. I get that. I understand that. But still, we have a strong economic base. And to be honest with you, our pro-growth supply-side policies from President Trump are working. Now, I don't really disagree with anything that Larry Kudlow said here. In fact, I agree with all of it. He said that he thinks that the issues regarding this fire spreading are going to be temporary, that eventually we will get past this. And he says that the economic issues that we're facing, the response from the virus that affects businesses, is also going to be temporary, that we'll recover from it. I agree with both of those things. That's part of my investment philosophy right now, is that I think the companies that I'm buying, I think are going to far outlive the current economic and health issues that we face. So, That's what I'm looking at. So long term, I agree with him on this perspective. But Larry Kudlow's advice on this subject is not that helpful because everything that he says is going to be positive. No matter what's going on, he's part of the president's administration. And so everything is going to be spun in a mostly positive way with a positive outlook. And I can give example after example of this. Here's a clip from an interview that Larry Kudlow gave on February 25th. As far as the U.S. is concerned, when you look at this, we have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. He said on the 25th that we contained this airtight. Almost airtight is the wording that he's used. The very next day after this interview, we had 11 new cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. It's anything but airtight. So, Obviously, he is going on the the optimistic side of this, trying to calm people's nerves, saying that this is something that's temporary, it's going to pass, we have it mostly contained, and that's the side that you're going to get if you listen to anybody on the political side wanting President Trump to be reelected. They're on the side where they need the economy to stay strong because that is in favor of President Trump being reelected. The more fear, the more business contraction, the more of a problem this becomes, that becomes a problem for President Trump being reelected. And on the other end, the news that you're going to get from people that do not want President Trump to be reelected is going to be the polar opposite. It is going to be panic-inducing, fear-inducing, anxiety-inducing. It's going to be spun the total opposite direction. Here's a clip from CNN. Welcome to Unfiltered. I'm Essie Cup. Here's tonight's headline. Panic attack. The coronavirus has unleashed a wave of panic across the country, evidenced by runs on hand sanitizer and face masks. Cancellations of major events, schools, and transportation closures, and quarantines in a handful of states. That's a little bit different of a message that she's sharing than what Larry Kudlow was. Do you see the differences between the two? Larry Kudlow is saying that this is temporary, this isn't going to be some long-lasting issue, that we're containing it, that U.S. businesses are going to do really well. His message is of reassurance. That's what he's trying to do, is reassure people. Whereas in this clip, she starts off with saying our headline news is panic attack. 
That's the word that she uses is panic attack is our headline news. She mentions panic twice in a 10 second clip. This is the the difference in messaging. And then the whole clip, she'll go on to explain how incompetently things are being handled, how big of an issue this is. Even the title of this video is this is why we're panicked about the coronavirus. So I think that this type of reporting, whether it comes from people from the administration or whether it comes from news outlets like CNN, I don't think that it's valuable from either of them because their thoughts on the subject, their reporting is going to be corrupted by their political biases. The CDC has their own information. You can go straight to the source that's not corrupted by political bias. And part of it, they have risk assessment here. If you go to this, they say the current risk assessment for most people, the immediate risk of being exposed to the virus is thought to be low. This virus is not currently widespread in the United States. That's directly from the CDC. I would rely a lot more on this information than currently people that are involved in politics looking at things from a political angle. So just keep that in mind when you're listening to all the different news sources report on this. Try to determine where it's coming from and what type of political angle they could have. Okay, well, let's get to some questions here. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com is the email address if you want to email in your questions, comments, or criticisms. You can also use Twitter or Instagram and message me there. I check those as well. Raj says, hi, Joseph. As an immigrant doctor in training, I only had a very vague idea about where 401k and 403b money went and how they grew. Now, thanks to you and several YouTubers, I have a better understanding of the basics, the terminology, etc. I begin my M1 finance journey after watching your inspiring videos, and it has been fun to watch the ups and downs. My question to you is this. How do you envision you would end your portfolio journey? You have mentioned in the past that you would want the dividends to get to a point where it yields a comfortable monthly side income. I think you mentioned that you're hoping to aim for $400 a month by the end of 2020. Do you have any target amount in mind? Do you imagine yourself selling some of the assets at a stage if you think that you'll get a great return purely based on the share price? My question presumes everything going well. M1 platform stays strong as far as we can see, and you won't have to pull money out for any emergencies. Best wishes to your channel and thanks for all the education. Well, Raj, I appreciate the question. This is something that I'm going to be going into in a lot more depth in future videos. It's a topic that I'm going to explore a lot more. We have our portfolios. We're contributing to them. We're growing the stream of passive income. But I want to talk more about the greater picture, the progress that we're on, calculating how close you are to meeting the goals that you have with it. I think all of that stuff is good because it gives you a big eagle eye view and it keeps you on the path invested a lot easier. So if you're focused on the greater picture, then you're less likely to make dumb decisions when it comes down to market volatility like we're seeing recently. But overall, I look at this in a couple different ways. So everybody has a cost of living. Your cost of living is the price that you pay every single month on mostly fixed costs things that you just have to pay for. We're talking about your mortgage, your utilities, your internet, maybe a couple streaming services that you have. You might have Netflix or YouTube TV or something like that. And then you have groceries, you have costs of travel, your vehicles and maintenance for that. These basic costs that you have just to live in the country that you're in. That's what I'm talking about here with cost of living. I'm not talking about extravagant vacations or buying high-end vehicles. That's not included with your cost of living. That's something different. Now, what I would like is for my dividend income to exceed my cost of living. So the amount that I pay every single month on average, I could add all of that up and and calculate my cost of living, and I want my dividends to exceed that amount. Once my dividends eclipse the cost of living, and now it's a bigger number, I will consider this a successful experiment. I will consider myself financially independent. That means that I could close off all active income. 
I have no job. I have no social security. I have no parents giving me any money. I have no money from anywhere else. And I'm financially independent. I'm fine because I have equity ownership in all these different companies and they pay their shareholders out. And I use that money to live off of. So that's what financial independence means is that you could quit your primary work, the thing that you do active work for, and you're fine. And that is the goal of my portfolio. Now, this isn't something where it's a pass fail. If you get 80% of the way there and you can't quite cover all of your cost of living, you're still way better off than somebody that didn't do this at all. If you can only cover half of your cost of living with passive income, you're much better off than somebody that can cover none of it, than somebody that has to work for every single dime to be able to cover their cost of living. So this is something where it's not pass and fail. It's not black and white. The further you get along with this journey, the better you're off. If you have any amount of passive income, residual money coming in every single month, you are less dependent on other people. You're less dependent on active income. So I look at it as a goal to get to the point where I'm 100% financially independent, and then I want to actually surpass that. So I wouldn't consider that the end of my journey. I would like to get it where I'm 120% financially independent, that now not only can I cover my cost of living, but I can cover it with some extra. I have money to travel and do other things that I normally couldn't do. I have even more freedom and just more margin of safety. So I don't look at this as a pass-fail thing. I look at this as a thing where I want to be financially independent. I want to get there as quick as possible. And then I would like to exceed my primary goal of becoming 100% financially independent. I want to become 120, 130%. I want to eclipse that number and make it so that I have as much cushion as possible. Now, I've also mentioned this before, but your passive income isn't the only thing that you should worry about. There's two main variables here. There's two major factors that you should be concerned about. One of them is growing a stream of passive income. That's something that you can do that I talk about all the time with the channel is increasing the amount that you're earning year over year in dividends and interest, passive income. The other factor is your cost of living and reducing your cost of living. So the amount that you're paying monthly, you need to reduce that amount as much as possible. And that's not really a reduction in lifestyle. So you don't want to reduce it by cutting out every single thing that you enjoy in life. You don't want to reduce it by saying, I'm going to cancel all my streaming services. I'm not going to eat out at any restaurant. I'm not going to do anything that's remotely fun because I want to reduce my cost of living. That's not what I'm suggesting here. What I'm suggesting is to reduce the amount of debt that you have that makes up your cost of living. So a lot of people's budget goes to debt, goes to auto loans, goes to school loans, goes to credit card debt, goes to their mortgage. That's house loans. So If you can start getting rid of these debts and biting away at them one piece at a time, you can remove your auto debts, that reduces your cost of living, remove your credit card debts, remove your school debts, and start paying down your home. If you got rid of all of that debt, your cost of living would go down dramatically. Then it would make it so that your passive income wouldn't need to be such a drastically high number to comfortably cross over your cost of living. So the more that you work on these two basic factors, the quicker that you get to financial independence. I'm trying to reduce my cost of living as quickly as possible while increasing my passive income as quickly as possible. The way that I'm reducing my cost of living is I paid off my cars. I paid off all school debt. I don't have any school debt. I paid off credit cards and I'm paying down my house a little bit ahead of schedule. The way that I'm increasing my passive income is through my portfolio that I talk about all the time. As those two numbers get closer together, I become more financially independent. So right now, if I was to add up all my my base cost of living, just enough money that I could comfortably get by and pay all of my monthly bills, 
it, I, I haven't added it up recently, but it would have to be somewhere around $1,600 to $1,800 a month, somewhere around there where if I had that amount of passive income, I could pay most of my bills and live an okay life doing that. Now, the number that I would like to get to where I'd feel really comfortable, where I'd be able to travel and have, I think, a really enjoyable life would be earning somewhere around $5,000 a month in dividends. That's the point that I would like to be. So there's a long ways to get to that point. I'm going to have to invest pretty aggressively for a long time to be able to generate that type of income, but that's the goal. And if I make it halfway there, I'll be better off than where I am now. If I make it all the way there, then I'll have a pretty good setup. Now, to answer your other question, Raj, you say, do you imagine yourself selling some or all of your assets at a stage if you think you'll get a great return purely based off of the share price? I'm not ruling that out. So if one of the companies I own goes so much up in value that it's grotesquely overvalued and it would be irresponsible not to sell it off to someone else, I would go ahead and sell it off. That's something that I would never really rule out, but it's not my investment philosophy. There's a couple different ways that you can look at investments. I like investing in things that I think have intrinsic value. And here's the big caveat here, value that you do not have to sell it off to other people to realize that value. So I'll outline some things that you have to sell off to other people in order to realize the value. One of them would be gold. Gold has some intrinsic practical value. You can use it in jewelry. You can use it in computer parts. But the huge amount of value that it has is based off of selling it to other people. That's the way. That's the only way that you can really realize the value of gold is by pawning it off to someone else and having them pay you more for it. That is the only way to realize it. Likewise, with the growth stock, you have a company that has never paid a dividend before and it doesn't have any plans to pay one in the future. It retains all of its earnings and it doesn't disperse any of it to investors. What's the only way that you can actually realize value from that investment? There's only one way and it's selling it off to someone else for more money than what you paid for it. That is the only way to realize value from that investment unless they eventually pay a dividend. So I like investing in things where I'm not reliant on other people paying me more than what I purchased it for, where I can realize some value from the investment without having that part of it. And dividend stocks offer that. So I look at companies like Realty Income Corp that pay dividends monthly. It is a productive asset that returns value to shareholders every single month. They pay out millions of dollars in dividends every single month. And investors don't have to worry about pawning their shares off to other people to realize that value. So that's always going to be a part of my investment philosophy. That's where my main focus is right now. I try to accumulate assets where I don't have to concern myself with what other people are doing. Felix says, hey, Joseph. I've been watching since the Investors You Should Follow video and your message and content has been nothing but essential to me ever since. I appreciate that, Felix. He says, the question I want to ask is, how do you feel about airline stocks? I have a bullish case on them long term, considering they are a staple in transportation and the world cannot move without them. They are getting battered and I have been scooping some up through dollar cost averaging ever since. I'm big on Delta. They have a great balance sheet, investment grade, and now are looking to raise $2 billion to get ahead of the bad quarter due to coronavirus. On top of all of that, I do believe this administration might give them some relief. Their dividend is borderline safe according to Simply Safe dividends, but I believe it is a lot stronger now that they have cash on hand. I appreciate your response and please keep up the great work. Cheers. Well, Felix, I agree with your basic premise here. These companies will probably be These companies will probably be worth a lot more in 10 years than they're worth right now because people continue to travel, continue to fly, and do all these type of things in the future. But you got to be really careful here. You can't put too much money in right away. You got to keep dollar cost averaging in. Be patient. Don't throw all your extra cash at these companies right away. You heard Jeffrey Gunlock outline that he thinks two falling knives are financials and travel. 
So airliners would come under travel. And falling knives means you don't want to catch them on the way down. You can really hurt yourself. I would slowly put money into these companies. The same thing is I get questions asked about Carnival Cruise Line, and I don't urge people to go out and buy all of it that they can right now because I think that it can continue to fall. A lot of people have put some money into these companies and then had it go down another 10 or 15% just in the following days. So I'd continue to be cautious and slowly put money into these companies over time. And that's going to be all I do for this episode. So I'll keep checking in with you guys. It could be another crazy week. It's been very volatile. Just keep in mind the companies you're buying. We're long-term investors here. Most of the companies that we're buying are going to be around for decades, not just the next couple months. So keep that in mind as we go through the week and you hear the big headlines of how many thousands of points the Dow's going up and down. Just keep in mind the long-term perspective. As always, I appreciate everybody that subscribes and shares the channel. And you can check out the Discord if you want to chat on a more regular basis. But I'll see you guys next time.